You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, May 21st, 2011, will be the date of the rapture and of the day of judgment. So spake Harold Camping, a Christian radio personality in 2009. And Camping's prophecy was believed by so many people that it got a lot of coverage in the national media. There were articles at the time about how his followers had uh, quit their jobs and donated their retirement savings or their children's educational fund and relocated to faraway lands to proclaim Camping's message. And these efforts led to 3,000 billboards being erected in 12 countries, all declaring May 21st, 2011, to be the date of the end. But of course, May 21st, 2011 came and went without event. Camping said he had miscalculated, and he came back with a new date, October 21st, 2011, but he whiffed on that one too, and then retired, and he has subsequently died. Now, when we hear about this incident, we may be tempted to laugh. How foolish! How could anyone be taken in like this? But instead of laughing this morning, I want us to think about this situation's true impact. Hundreds of families suffered serious financial loss. Tens of thousands of people, literally, had their faith devastated, wondering if they could ever trust a Christian teacher again, many wondering if God was even real. Millions of unbelievers were laughing at Christians for believing something so foolish like Jesus might come back to earth to end history. And you know, elsewhere there were even worse things that took place. In Vietnam, a group of 5,000 Hmong believers assembled to await the return of Christ. Some of them literally sold all that they had to get on a bus to go to the gathering. But when they arrived, police descended on them, beat some, and arrested many for participating in an unlawful assembly. In Russia, a 14-year-old girl committed suicide because of terror due to Camping's prophecy. Friends, this idea of setting dates for the return of Christ is no joke. It can birth some really terrible consequences. And so we need to tread carefully when we talk about when the end of history will take place and what the end of history will entail, because getting this wrong can prove really catastrophic. So this morning, with great trepidation and humility, we're going to talk about what the Bible says concerning the end of history and the timing of that end as we continue in Matthew's gospel. This morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 42. And today we're going to ask two questions. First, how will history end? And then second, when will history end? Well, let's start with the first question. How will history end? Let's remind ourselves quickly where we are in Matthew's gospel. There's just a few days left before Jesus' crucifixion, and Jesus has just been rejected in Jerusalem. The religious leaders once more have said they will not accept him as the Messiah, 
And now, so at the end of chapter 23, Jesus ends his public ministry. He will make no more appeals to Jerusalem. Instead, he acts as a judge and pronounces condemnation upon the city. Matthew 23, 38, he says, Your house is left to you desolate. Desolation is coming for Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus said back in chapter 21 that those who kill God's son will receive a miserable death. And he said in chapter 22, troops would come to destroy the murderers and burn their city. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And with that, Jesus leads his disciples out of the temple and out of Jerusalem, and they head back to the place where they were staying on the Mount of Olives. Now we said last week that there are some really spectacular views of Jerusalem, from the close and the sun was setting. The sun's rays would have reflected off the gold of the temple in a really dazzling way. And the disciples taken with this scenery pointed out to Jesus, perhaps hoping that the beauty of this scene will get Jesus to soften uh, his view about Jerusalem and say some positive things about the city or the temple. But instead, Jesus issues another prophecy of doom. Look at chapter 24, verse 2. He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple will be destroyed. Now, understandably, Jesus' disciples were shocked by this prophecy, hearing that this place they had venerated their whole lives, this center of their religion, this place where they thought heaven met earth, was going to be destroyed. It would have sounded like the end of the world to them. And so they want to hear more about what Jesus is saying. They want more details. And so they ask in verse 3, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus responds with his fifth and final lengthy sermon in this book, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, because it was delivered from the Mount of Olives. And the Olivet Discourse takes up chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew's Gospel. Now, we started looking at this last week, and we said that this is a very controversial passage, because it contains a lot of prophecy. And we spent time last week talking about different ways that the Olivet Discourse has been understood. Uh, so many people approach these chapters with what's called a preterist view, believing that all of these prophecies were fulfilled in the year 70, when Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed. Many other people approach the discourse with what's called a futurist view. They understand that all of the prophecies in these chapters point to a seven-year period that will take place immediately before the end of history. And last week I gave a number of reasons why I think that both of these views are problematic. And I'm not going to get into that now. If you weren't here with us and are interested about why I don't hold either of these views, I would encourage you to listen to last week's sermon on the website. But as we pick up today, I'm going to assume everything I argued last week. And here are the highlights. I said last week that I think Jesus is preaching this sermon primarily because the disciples are confused. They believe that the destruction of their temple will signal the end of history. But Jesus now says that is not the case. The fall of the temple does not signal the immediate end of history. Instead, it is a part of a series of painful, terrible events that are merely the beginning of the birth pains. Things that might seem like they're signaling the end is about to happen, but which actually do not. 
And I argued last week that chapter tw uh, 24, verses 4 through 28, describe these beginning of the birth pains. And I argued that all of the events Jesus describes here characterize the entire church age, the whole period that spans from the day of Pentecost until the end. Now, what are these events that characterize the church age? Well, Jesus said there will be many false religious teachers, wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters. Believers will suffer persecution. Many who profess Christ will fall away. The gospel will spread throughout the whole world. And friends, all of these things were taking place in the first century, and they're still taking place in the 21st century. Then they've taken place in every century in between. But the sharpest of these birth pains was the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple and the horrors surrounding these events in the year 70. And that's what we looked at last week. Events which have characterized the last 2,000 years and which will continue until the end comes. But make no mistake, the end will come. Jesus said in verse 22 of this chapter, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The horrors of this age, all these disasters and wars are such that if God did not intervene, humanity would destroy itself. Everyone would die. But because of God's kindness towards those who belong to him, he will intervene in the affairs of history by ending the church age, by bringing history to its consummation. And now as we come to our passage today, Jesus begins to describe for us that end. And he starts like this. Look at verse 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, the futurist seeing the word tribulation here says, oh, yeah, this is telling us verses 4 through 28 are all about seven years at the end of history. And again, I would say I disagree for all the reasons I cited last week. I'm not going to get into all of that again. The preterist understands the tribulation of those days to be the immense suffering surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. But note that Jesus doesn't make this statement in verse 29 immediately after describing the destruction of Jerusalem. No, he makes it immediately after his comments warning against false teachers who pretend to be the Christ. So I don't think the preterists are right here that Jesus is talking about the suffering associated with the year 70 either. No, we need to uh, come to the very difficult uh, position that verse 29 follows verse 28. And verse 28 is the end of this section that describes the church age. So I think that what he's saying here is immediately after the tribulation, that word just means suffering, immediately after the suffering of the church age, things are going to come to a crashing halt as God intervenes in this world to bring about the end of history. Now we might expect Jesus to, to then start describing events that uh, we often think about when we discuss the end times today, the rapture, the millennium, and so forth. But we don't find that here, and we shouldn't expect to, because we believe in the doctrine of progressive revelation. God didn't disclose all theological truth to his people all at once. Rather, he revealed it gradually across time. And what we're about to see here is the first distinctly Christian revelation about the details of the end. More would be revealed later to the apostles. So what Jesus says here does not touch on many of those issues that were revealed later, that we like to talk about today. Now, unfortunately, many people then believe that the best way to interpret this passage is to try to connect it to a bunch of those later passages that talk about the things that we like to talk about. 
But if we do that, what happens is we actually wind up missing what this passage is saying on its own terms. So instead of trying to jump all over the Bible and talk about all kinds of things surrounding the end, what I want to do here is simply examine what Jesus told his disciples in this passage about what the end holds. So in verses 29 to 31, Jesus now describes how history will end, and he tells us three things. First, he tells us that the end of history will be a time when God's wrath bursts forth in cosmic judgment. Immediately after the church age ends, we read verse 29, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. If things like world wars and earthquakes are just the start of the birth pains, then we shouldn't be shocked to find out the signs that really signal the immediate end of history are shockingly dramatic. Jesus describes some amazing astronomical phenomena here. But I don't want you to read this and think, okay, what this is saying is God is going to put on a really cool light show in the night sky. Because we find this language of the sun and moon being darkened elsewhere in the Bible, and usually it appears in, descri in descriptions of God pouring out His wrath in judgment. So God says to Egypt in Ezekiel 32.7, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. Now there's a debate today about whether we should understand these descriptions of astronomical events as being literal or metaphorical. I don't have time to get into that right now. But I would argue in this passage when we see this language, we should understand this to be a prophecy that expects a literal fulfillment. Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and Matthew 27 says there was darkness over all the land, that's not a metaphor. When God poured the full measure of His fury upon Jesus for our sin, the sky turned dark. That really happened. And in the same way, when this world draws to a conclusion, I think we should understand that these astronomical signs will literally likewise occur. After all, the rest of the signs Jesus has described in this discourse had literal fulfillments. The wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and the fall of the temple, those weren't just metaphors, they really happened. So we should understand these signs will be literally fulfilled as well. The sun and moon will be darkened. The creation will begin to be unmade as God pours His fury upon this rebellious world. And here we should think of the shocking disasters we find described in the book of Revelation. Because we're told that the great tribulation at the end of history will involve the sun becoming black as sackcloth and the full moon becoming like blood as all manner of horrors and plagues are unleashed upon the earth. Plagues that Revelation 8 says will cause people to hide themselves in caves, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for their great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? The sky will be darkened as judgment bursts forth on this world. We see this judgment further as Jesus says the stars will fall from heaven. This might be another reference to the celestial bodies being darkened. But Revelation seems to describe the collision of certain celestial objects with the earth, causing terrible destruction. I think that's probably what's in view here. However, this may refer to something else. 
There are some very old and venerable interpretations of passages in Revelation that understand falling stars to speak of demons. Certainly the final words of verse 29 seem to speak of the demons. As Jesus says, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This term powers throughout the New Testament often speaks of evil angels. What Paul calls in Ephesians 6, the powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is, as history draws to a close, God will unleash his furious destructive judgments on this rebellious world and on the invisible powers of spiritual darkness as well. The end will be a time of furious, catastrophic judgment. Second, Jesus tells us that the end will be a time when the unbelieving world comes face to face with the Christ that it has rejected. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Jesus has said the end will be characterized by these amazing astronomical signs, but those are just the warm-up for what comes next. As Jesus now says, something else will appear in the sky. But what is this sign of the Son of Man? Well, the short answer is we don't know for certain. Throughout Christian history, there have been three major interpretations. The first view is based on the alleged conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine, who claimed that one day he looked at the sky and saw a vision of the cross. And so as a result of this legend, throughout history, many Christians have said, the sign of the Son of Man is a cross that will appear in the sky. The problem is, there's no biblical evidence for this interpretation. There are plenty of reasons to doubt that Constantine's vision really happened the way he said it did. And there's no reason to connect Constantine's vision with this passage. So I totally reject this view. The second view, which is very popular today, suggests that the sign of the Son of Man is the banner of his heavenly army. This interpretation is based on the fact that the Greek word translated sign here can speak of an army's banner. And many Old Testament prophecies of judgment speak of the banners of the army of heaven. So Isaiah 13.2 says, On a bare hill raise a signal, that would be the banner, I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So the idea here might be that in the sky the Lord's banner will appear and his army will gather to it and descend. And that is quite possible. But I think that the third interpretation is best. And the third view argues that the word of here is not signaling possession, but rather explanation. That can happen in Greek grammar. So this interpretation would say that the sign of the Son of Man is not the sign belonging to the Son of Man. Rather, it is the sign which is the Son of Man. I think Jesus here is saying that the next thing to appear in the sky will be Jesus himself as he descends to earth. And this aligns very well with the rest of verse 30, because Jesus now continues. Look at verse 30. He says, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Earlier in this discourse, Jesus said, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Everybody's going to see him. You won't be able to miss it. And in that same way, Jesus now says, all the tribes of the earth will see him. As the end occurs, everyone in this world will see this stunning collision of heaven and earth. And how will the earth respond? 
With gladness? Will there be parties? Jesus is coming back? No, with tremendous sorrow. As we sang earlier, deeply wailing. Jesus here seems to be borrowing language from an amazing prophecy found in Zechariah 12, verse 10, where God I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. God says a time is coming when Israel will look on him. But how does God describe himself here? As him whom they have pierced. And that verb pierce everywhere else in the Old Testament speaks of enduring a violent death. This is a clear prophecy of the crucifixion, a clear testimony to the deity of Christ. Jesus is God and man. He had his hands pierced by nails. He had his side pierced by a spear. As Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. This same Jesus whom Israel rejected will come again to judge the living and the dead. And Zechariah says as Jesus descends and as Israel beholds him, they will mourn. But their sorrow is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Because God says this scene is a, a, scene, is a means by which he will grant a spirit of grace. An answer pleas for mercy from Israel who rejected Jesus when he first walked the earth. Israel will finally receive her king. But now Jesus adds that as the rest of the nations behold him descending, they too will mourn, not with godly sorrow leading to repentance, but with worldly sorrow. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. As the nations face the justice that they are owed, because they have rejected the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all nations by this point. And as they have hated Jesus' followers and persecuted them, as verse 9 says, they will face justice. See, friends, the nations have rejected Jesus. Psalm 2 says they have raged against his rule, but now they will see Jesus is Lord. And all of the rebellions have been in vain. And so they wail, expecting the judgment that they will soon receive. Verse 30 concludes with one final reference to the Old Testament. It says, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is a reference to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. We read these earlier, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Throughout this book, Jesus has often called himself the Son of Man. This is why he was pointing to this prophecy. And in this prophecy, Daniel sees the heavenly court. He sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father on his throne. And then another figure appears, this one like a son of man. Now this section of Daniel is written in Aramaic. And in Aramaic, son of man just means a human being. So we have here a human being. 
But while this figure is a human being, we're also told that he comes on the clouds of heaven. This is very important for understanding this vision. Because throughout the Old Testament, God alone is described as riding on the clouds. Isaiah 19.1 says, The Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Psalm 104 says, He makes the clouds His chariot. Without exception in the Old Testament, God is the one who rides the clouds. And yet here is this Son of Man, this human being, riding the clouds. He's human, but He's something more. He's also divine. And this Son of Man is brought before the Ancient of Days. One divine figure interacts with another. God interacts with God. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, this would make no sense. But the Father interacts with the Son. And what happens? The Father gives the Son a glorious rulership and kingdom. The greatest of all kingdoms. A kingdom that will be global, reigning over every people group on earth. A kingdom that will be perpetual, that will continue forever. A kingdom that will be final, that will never be succeeded by some other kingdom that has conquered it. And friends, Jesus is this Son of Man. He is this King. And at the end of history, Jesus will come to take possession of this kingdom that the Father has given him. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you'll know we've talked about the idea of kingdom a lot. And there are many places in Matthew where it sounds like Jesus' kingdom has already begun. Matthew 2 says Jesus was born king. In Matthew 4, Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. It's near because the king has come. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a pretty clear statement. The kingdom of God had begun in the first advent of Christ. And yet, we also find in Matthew a number of statements that anticipate the coming of the kingdom as a future event. Jesus speaks of people entering the kingdom as something that will happen after final judgment. Or he tells us to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as in heaven. How should we understand the kingdom? Has it already begun or not? Well, we said throughout this book that what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, or what the other gospel writers call the kingdom of God, refers to the bursting forth of God's rule into this darkened world. First century Jews thought this would happen all at once. Messiah would appear, he would vanquish Israel's enemies, he would set all things right. But what happened when Jesus was born? It was quite different. What came, not this all-conquering political reality, but a small, organic, growing thing. God's rule burst forth into this world one soul at a time and one conversion at a time. And yet, while that is how the kingdom began... There is a sense that the kingdom must come in its fullness, that Christ must impose his rule on the earth and set all things right. And here we see that day is coming. Friends, when history ends, Jesus will return, not as a suffering servant, not meek and mild little Jesus. He will come as a conquering warrior. Revelation 19 says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh are a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this vision ends with a declaration that multitudes will be slain by the sword that came from his mouth. Friends, the end will be a time when Christ conquers this world and the nations meet the wrath of this Jesus whom they have spurned. But third, Jesus says the end is a time in which there will be a final separation of the righteous and the lost. Look at verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In verse 14, Jesus said his gospel would be preached to all nations. And here we find out that the elect of God will come from all nations on earth as the angels are dispatched to the four winds, an ancient way of talking about north, south, east, and west, to gather the people of God from across the whole globe to bring them to Jesus. And friends, this will facilitate judgment. Because Jesus explained earlier in this book, in chapter 13, this is how the end of the age will be. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace... In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, there will be a final separation of the elect and the damned, the believer and the unbeliever. Heaven is real and so is hell. Now, we're going to say a lot more about this ultimate separation and final judgment in a few weeks when we come to the end of chapter 25. But for now, let me say this. If you know Christ, a glorious destiny awaits you. Jesus says in Matthew 8, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There will be glorious joy. It will be like an unending wedding banquet. And what will make it glorious is that we will dwell with Christ forever. And it will be joy unimaginable. But the next verse warns that many will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a heaven to be gained. There is a hell to be shunned. And if we want to be gathered unto Christ for salvation when he returns, then we need to know this now. In chapter 7, Jesus says there is a broad road that leads to destruction. We all start on that path, heading for hell, slaves of sin. And friends, we need to turn off that road, and we need to turn onto the one and only narrow road that leads to life. We need to receive God's gift of salvation by repentantly believing in Jesus. We need to turn away from our old life of sin. We need to turn to Jesus to trust him and follow him. Because as we've seen, he is God, he is man, he died for our sins, and he rose again. And friends, if we turn to Christ, we will live with him forever in unending bliss. But if we do not, then one day we will deeply wail because the horrors of hell are real. So I beg you today. Turn to Christ and live, because the end is coming. Because these judgments aren't just some legend from the past. They will befall the earth. Christ will return. There will be final separation. Friends, it is coming, and it is coming soon. But how soon? Well, this brings us now to our last point. When will history end? Back in verse 3, the disciples had asked Jesus, not just about these things, which in context was talking about the destruction of the temple, and they not only asked what signs would signal the end of the age, but they also asked Jesus, when will these things be? They wanted to know the timing of the end. And now Jesus answers that part of their question as well. Look at verse 32. He says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. There were fig trees on the Mount of Olives, a ready illustration for Jesus to point the disciples to. And it was at this point, springtime, the Passover was about to happen. The fig trees would just be budding. In a few weeks, they would grow leaves. And people back then understood that when they saw fig trees with leaves, that was a reliable indicator that summer was about to begin. In the same way, Jesus says, there are reliable indicators that signal when the end is near, that the end is near. Look at verse 33. He says, so also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, what are the signs that the end is near? Jesus says they are these things. I understand these things to be the events Jesus described in verses 4 through 28 for two reasons. First, because this language of these things comes from the disciples' question in verse 3 when they were asking about when the temple would be destroyed. And second, because the events of verses 29 to 31 cannot be the signs anticipating the end of history because they're actually describing that end. So I think Jesus is saying the events that signal the end are the events that we talked about last week. Now functionally, what this means is Jesus is now going to tie together everything we've seen over the last two weeks. He's going to explain the relationship of these two sets of events that he's been distinguishing throughout this discourse. How do the events of verses 4 through 28 relate to the events of verses 29 to 31? How do the beginning of the birth pains connect to the end? Jesus says the birth pains are a reliable indicator that he is near, that he is at the very gates, that he is about to return. But wait a minute. I thought we said last week the the events of verses 4 through 28 are not signs of the immediacy of the end. In fact, Jesus says that himself explicitly in verse 8. That we should not understand false religious teachers or intense wars or terrible natural disasters as signs that the end has begun. They are not signs of the immediacy of the end. Say, okay, well, what are the signs of the immediacy of the end? Well, I'd say those astronomical signs in verse 29 or the sign of the Son of Man in the sky. Parallel passage in Luke 21, Jesus says about those things, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Friends, should we look up and see the sun has been blotted out and the moon is darkened and the stars are falling? It's time to look up because Christ's coming back. But we should not adopt that same posture every time we read about some earthquake or some rumor of a war somewhere. Because this world's always characterized by false religious leaders and wars and disasters and persecutions. They are not the signs of the immediacy of the end. But what we find here is that verses 4 through 28 are signs of the imminence of the end. These things remind us that the end is coming. They tell us not that the end has begun, but they remind us that the end could begin at any moment, even in the next moment. So while we should not be dominated by the headlines, scouring them for prophetic signs, we should recognize that the abundance of heresies and disasters and wars and apostasies of our world do connect with the great promise that Christ will return. They do point us towards that promise. He is near. It could all begin at any moment. And so because of the frequency of these kinds of events throughout history, Christians have always been justified and expecting that they might leave, live to see the end begin at any time. And friends, we should have that expectation too. It could begin today. 
Because friends, one day God will decide that the time is right. And Jesus will end the horrors of this age by stepping through the door and returning. And he will set all things right. And so what we learn here is that the events that characterize the whole church age testify to us that the end could begin at any moment. Now to us, we see these kind of events all over the world, and we see them in our history books. But to the disciples, they were still future. So now Jesus answers their question. They want to know when these things are going to begin. When will the temple be destroyed? When is all this bad stuff Jesus is talking about going to start? And Jesus gives them a very direct answer. Look at verse 34. He says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And I said last week, people have tried to redefine these words, this generation, over and over again. It just won't work. This generation must refer to the generation Jesus was speaking to. And indeed, within the span of one generation, within the next 40 years, the beginning of the birth pains would commence. The temple was destroyed 37 years later. I cataloged last week how many false messiahs and really significant natural disasters happened within the next 40 years of Jesus saying these words. The gospel began to spread throughout the whole world within the next 40 years. The timing of the events of verses 4 through 28 is certain. Jesus is emphatic. He says, truly I say to you, and then afterwards he says, my word won't pass away. He is guaranteeing that this promise is true. And it was. The signs promised, verses 4 through 28, all happened within one generation, or at least began. But what about the end? When will the end happen? When will the Son of Man descend to the earth? The disciples thought that was going to be at the same time the temple fell. Now Jesus is crystal clear. These are separate events. While the temple will fall within a generation, the end of history is on a very different schedule. Look at verse 36. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Here Jesus speaks not of these things, but of that day. And in context, I think now he's talking about verses 29 to 31, the final events in history. And Jesus says nobody knows when they're going to take place. No human, no angel, not even him, not even the Son, but the Father only. Now this verse is famous because of this statement that the Son does not know when the end will occur. And this has often caused questions for people who ponder the deity of Christ. Because if God knows all things... And if the Father is truly God, and if the Son is truly God, then how can there be something the Father knows which the Son doesn't? But I think that approach to this question is totally mistaken. We've already seen the deity of Christ strongly affirmed in our passage. He is the one whom they have pierced, Zechariah 12.10. He is the one who rides the clouds in Daniel 7. Jesus is truly God. But to understand this verse, we also have to remember Jesus is truly man. And while God has no limitations of any kind upon his attributes, Jesus in his humanity took on limitations. In John 4, we read Jesus got tired. In Matthew 4, we see Jesus got hungry. In Matthew 27, we're going to see Jesus dies. Can God get tired or hunger or die? No. In the same way, in his deity alone, prior to his taking on flesh, it would be nonsensical to talk about God, the eternal Son, being tired, hungry, or dead. But in his incarnation, having taken on humanity, Jesus freely subjected himself to the limitations of humanity. 
Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself that by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, there are points in Jesus' ministry where he uses his divine powers, but about this question of when will the end happen, his deity has not communicated that truth to his humanity, apparently. That's how I understand this verse. Friends, yes, the Son is God. He is perfect in all the divine perfections alongside the Father. But he has chosen in his incarnation to subject himself, not just to tiredness, hunger, and death, but to also share humanity's unawareness of when the end will begin. So Jesus does not know and cannot disclose to us the precise date of the end. And yet we must know that the end will still come. The Father has set a date when it will happen, and it will. But we cannot know that date. We cannot calculate it by jumbling a bunch of biblical numbers into a calculator and pretending we figured it out. We cannot discover it by listening to some would-be prophet. We cannot discover it by undertaking a careful study of the Jewish feasts and their prophetic fulfillments. Believer, anybody who tells you that they know when the end will come is someone we should avoid. As I pointed out at the beginning of this sermon, date setting leads to some really terrible outcomes. Not just the confusion and misery we talked about at the beginning, but some of the worst cults and false teachers got their start by setting dates. Friends, do not listen to anybody who says they know when the end will be. And if you think you figured it out, you need to repent. Because it's wrong and presumptuous to try to discover the timing of the end. If the Lord Jesus, the one to whom all the scriptures point, says he doesn't know the date, why in the world should we imagine we're smarter than him and that we can figure it all out? But while we cannot know the precise date of the end, Jesus does give us some details about what life will be like when the end approaches. Look at verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Friends, God has judged this world before, back in Genesis 6 and 7. And as God's judgment approached, what was the attitude of the people in that culture? When they saw Noah building that ark, a project that took him decades, when Noah the preacher of righteousness told them judgment was coming, did they listen? Did they repent? Did they seek God's mercy? Or did they just chuckle at that weirdo Noah and go on living their lives? Friends, that's how our world views this promise that Jesus is coming back. 2 Peter 3 says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's been 2,000 years, they say. Jesus isn't coming back. Things are just going to keep happening as they always have. Nothing will change. That's what the scoffer thinks. So as judgment approaches, what do they do? Do they consider their ways? Do they repent? Do they turn to Christ? No, they just keep eating and drinking and marrying and getting on with life. No need to worry, right? And that's how it will be until it's too late. The terrible events that characterize our age don't seem to get their attention. And the terrible events of the Great Tribulation won't either. We might think, if you saw the sun being blotted out and the stars falling, how would you not be wise enough to turn to Christ? But friends, over the last three years, haven't we seen just how desperate people are for any sense of normalcy? 
even when there's plenty of evidence that things aren't normal. It'll be like that right up until the end. People will be so desperate to preserve their sense of the good life, pretending like judgment isn't coming until it does. And then in one moment, they will all be swept away. Verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Two farmers, two women grinding flour. In an instant, judgment falls. Separation. One goes to be with Christ. One is left for judgment. One is saved. One is lost. Instant, final separation. Paul says this, while people are saying, oh, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. When will the end come? We don't know the day or the hour, but we know it will be a time a lot like ours. A time when people are desperate to go about their normal lives, scoffing at the promise of Christ's return. And then all at once it will be too late. Sudden destruction will fall. I plead with you this morning, don't be a scoffer. Yes, it's been a long time since Jesus promised to return. 2 Peter 3 continues by saying, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved. Friends, Jesus has given mankind almost 2,000 years. That's not slowness. That's patience. That's grace. That's an invitation to repent. But make no mistake, he is surely coming, and with him will come awful judgment. So listen to what Jesus says in verse 42. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We're going to look at this verse more next week and the whole concept of readiness. But the idea is this. We don't know when Christ is coming back, so we need to be ready. And ready doesn't mean that we're constantly scouring the headlines to see the signs of his immediate return. No true readiness for Christ's return is about living in a way consistent with what our master has commanded us to do. And that readiness is not optional for the believer. It is commanded of us. We must live each moment as though in the next we will be called to account by Christ. That's the readiness we need to have. So friend, today, are you ready? If you've never turned from your sin and submitted to Christ, I can assure you that you are not. Are you scoffing? The Bible says the scoffer is a fool. You think just because it's been 2,000 years, Jesus isn't coming back? He's been waiting to give people like you a chance to turn and be saved. Friend, do so before it's too late. Today, do you know Christ? If so, I want to say two things to you. First, don't be discouraged by the evils of our world. Yes, the news is filled with terrible things. When we see them, when we wince at them, let us remember these are signs of the imminence of the end. They tell us things could all be wrapped up today. The end could begin today because such horrors are still happening on the earth. And when Christ comes back, he will set all things right. But second, are you ready? Or are there things in your life you know you want to deal with before you see Jesus for judgment? Are there sins you've been toying with, convincing yourself you've got time to repent later? Is there evangelism you've been putting off until a more convenient time? Have you been waiting for retirement? to get more serious about your faith? 
Friends, we're going to see next week, those mindsets are really dangerous. And they show us we may not be ready for final judgment. They may show us that we don't know Christ at all. No, friend, if you say that you believe in Jesus, then now is the time to act like it. Let us depart from iniquity, and let us be about the Father's business. For as Jesus says among the final words of the Bible, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.